Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Giselle Donnelly and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my colleagues, Yulia Zorza with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities, and Dalib Borohaj, also with AEI. Our guest today is Andrei Liskovich, a man of many talents uh, and a little bit of a departure for the sort of guests that we've had, uh, as we will discover in the course of the podcast. Our podcast is devoted to the many challenges to European security that have arisen along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, what we call the Eastern Front, and why those are important to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much. Andre, welcome. We've, we've been uh, playing uh, calendar tag for some months to try to get you on here. I'm very pleased that we've finally accomplished this uh, objective. You travel back and forth between Ukraine and the United States and points west quite a bit. And I understand uh, you've just recently been to the southern front uh, in Ukraine. So before we delve into uh, sort of the larger picture of uh, your work and also how you came to be doing it, I wonder if you could give us kind of a snap update of your last tour of the battlefront. Thanks for having me, uh, Giselle. I uh, spent most of last week at the southern front, Zaporizhia front, um, slightly south of Orikhiv, which is a regional hub in Zaporizhia. Uh, this is the area where two of the main brigades that were involved in the initial counteroffensive actions are trying to push the line south, the 47th and the 33rd Brigade and the reinforcements. Um, it's hard to describe that area without necessarily making this description be inadequate. When you go there, you go to a city that was once a peaceful city with you know, high-rises by Soviet standards, so nine-story houses, um, apartment buildings. Um, I've been to that town a number of times before. It was peaceful, you know, kids playing in, you know, in the street. There will be all kinds of uh, local businesses. It would be fairly vibrant town. Uh, now there's barely any civilian population left. Uh, there's barely a building that has not been damaged in some way by artillery fire. Uh, you go in, none of the infrastructure works, you don't have running water, you don't have electricity, you don't have working cellular connection, and most of the people you run into are the military that are involved in the counteroffensive in one way or the other. I spent uh, a lot of time interviewing troops on um, you know, their experiences in the first month of the counteroffensive, trying to understand where the bottlenecks are and how we could help. Uh, I know there's a lot of speculation about whether or not the offensive is going according to plan and whether there is realistic prospect of getting through, say, to the Sea of Azov, and trying to get their perspective was very important for me to direct our efforts at the fund and try to inform Western policymakers on possible courses of action that could help that objective. My overall impression is that the fortifications are certainly much more challenging than anticipated. The minefields are incredibly dense. The um, fields a mine with a 50 centimeter step, so think of it as a foot and a half between mines, stretching for hundreds of meters between tree lines. So all of these fields that were normally used for agri agriculture are now minefields, uh, and they are basically impossible to get through without uh, very significant engineering effort, which requires resources that Ukraine um, is short on. Uh, so what happens, the first thing that was very different from my expectation was the geometry of the battlefield. In my mind, 
you would have these trenches stretching from west to east and the Ukrainian forces attacking them perpendicular uh, in a perpendicular fashion from the north. Apparently the geometry there is completely different. The trenches in fact go north to south and they are hidden in tree lines that separate fields. And so the counteroffensive is in fact approaching these uh, tree lines from the north and in these narrow lines they're trying to advance, they're trying to push out folks from these trenches in the southern direction. So it's incredibly difficult geometry because all of the paths through which the Ukrainian forces are approaching are predictable. There are only so many areas from which the forces can approach. And so they get met with crossfire from you know multiple tree lines and from uh, behind the hills in the rear. So it's a very challenging area to get through. And what I came to understand was that these, these frontal tactics, even though there was a chance that they would succeed in the first couple of days through surprise and through disorganization on the Russian side, that clearly did not materialize. And so now Ukraine needs to do something that either disrupts the logistics in the back and makes it untenable to hold these positions, or materially steps up the power of the you know firepower that's applied to these fortifications. Because the fortifications built there are able to withstand 155 millimeter direct hits, which is fairly different from any other area that Ukraine has liberated before. So it requires a reconsideration of tactics. Um, these delays have clearly forced the Ukrainian command to take a step back and try to think about what they should be doing instead. They have still not deployed the majority of their reserves. So there's still, it's, it, it remains to be seen whether with some additional equipment that helps demine and that helps increase the firepower directed at these uh, fortifications, so the, whether Ukraine can break through. I will certainly do what I can to try to make sure this equipment is available. If we can stay in this topic a little bit, and I probably will geek out over it a little bit and pay Delibor and Yulia back later if I have to. So that's that's hugely interesting uh, to me, Andre. I have just a couple questions uh, about how the Ukrainians think that they want to adapt to the different technical geometry that you described. And secondly, and possibly as important, if not more so, so the Russians obviously had many months to cook up uh, this defensive scheme. Um, my question is, do we see them in you know, periods between attacks or strikes going back out to repair and reinforce and refurbish the defenses? Or, you know, should we think that the Ukrainians can, you know, chip away, uh, degrade the defenses to the point where there will be a substantial disruption that will allow for more uh, decisive maneuver and, and penetration? I just wondered if you had any thoughts on those two subjects. Uh, this is exactly the question I asked repeatedly. Uh, I wanted to understand whether there's a way to incrementally get through. So my read is that it's possible, but there's a lot of conditions. Uh, so the first thing that it's important to keep in mind that the Russian troops are able to replace mines if Ukraine, having demined an area, does not control it uh, by directly having shooting uh, access to it. So if it cannot cover those areas, the Russians are able to replace the mines overnight. They also have remote mining capability where they use MLRS systems to effectively throw these mines. However, in areas where there is fire control, Ukraine has been able to clear out some areas, not not very large areas, but 
nevertheless, it has been done. Uh, with the trenches, some of these fortifications, I just uh, they're not going to be penetrated with 155 millimeter shells. So they need different, more powerful munitions. Or basically, if, you, if, if the, the interesting question is, there's been a group of military analysts visiting Ukraine in the last week, and I asked them about how the DoD would approach the same fortifications had the U.S. had the same constraints as Ukraine. So we're assuming there's no B-52 bombers. Uh, and they said, well, we, we wouldn't. Uh, so our actual approach would be to bomb the hell out of it, so literally make sure there's nothing left by applying overwhelming firepower, and then we'd send the infantry. So the question is, uh, given that Ukraine does not have F-16s and significant air capability that would allow to deploy much larger munitions than 155 millimeter shells to get these fortifications destroyed, is there an alternative? There seems to be a way with potentially JDAM-type munitions, so the gliding bombs that do not require uh, flying over these positions that can be thrown from a distance of 20, 30 miles away. Um, but it remains to be seen whether these could be deployed effectively. We know from the leaks that Russia has been able to jam these JDAMs because they're GPS-guided, and so anything that's GPS-guided ends up being vulnerable to jamming, so they end up not hitting the target. However, there are other ways to aim these munitions, and in my mind, there might be uh, a path where these larger munitions will be deployed against these fortifications. It remains to be seen whether this is viable. I'm not a military expert, so I'm trying to relay the sort of overall, uh, overall impressions from different sources, but I feel there is, there is a path forward without dramatic improvement in capabilities. There, there, there are certain things that need to be done, but with the constraints that Ukraine has, again, the DOD told me that they would probably not have done much better. Uh, again, assuming they have no overwhelming uh, air superiority. So it's hard to tell. Time will tell. Ukraine does need some additional capabilities, not dramatically different, but somewhat different and, and on a quantity as well. Uh, they, there need, need to be some improvements, but I think there's a path. Whether or not it becomes viable, we'll see. The news of the cluster munition that's going to be provided to Ukraine, does that make any difference in this context or not? So it's interesting. I got the impression that they would be far more relevant in defensive operations when the enemy has concentration of forces that uh, is then deployed against the Ukrainian positions. And that statement remains to be true. However, there's quite a few targets that uh, the other side has to uh, deploy um, and kind of ma make them relatively vulnerable. Uh, things like electronic warfare stations that end up uh, playing a significant role in covering their forces and interfering with Ukrainian drone drones and other um, radio frequency or navigation sen uh, navig dependent navigation systems. And taking out those is very difficult with artillery, with uh, single shots, because they're able to move, and uh, cassette munitions, these uh, class cluster munitions, are able to, in fact, take out these electronic warfare stations uh, by damaging their antennas, by creating sufficient damage. Even if they're not destroyed, they end up being inoperable for a significant period of time. So I think there's a way to deploy them. I don't think they'll be used in very... At a very large scale, they will be used against very specific kinds of targets because I don't expect a, a large concentrations of exposed troops to be uh, visible in the defensive posture. And reachable neither. Can I take maybe a step back within this? Are we done with the geeking out? <laughs> uh, can I? Uh, it, can, it could resurface at any I moment know, just for uh, now. without warning. Yes, but please proceed. <laughs> just for now. Um, you know, 
you're very familiar with the discussions that the political discussions about the war and they've come up in endless and very painful ways now with the Vilnius summit as well. But but the reality is that Ukrainian um, leadership, political and military, has been saying, having a view on these minefields, etc., has been saying basically since spring, we are, what is it, at um, the end of the first half of the war. We're sort of close to the middle. And every time they would say this, no matter how high level, the majority that I've seen of Americans will roll their eyes and scoff and say, no, we need to like make progress. We like a winner, all of that. But over the last week, just before the Vilnius summit, I've started seeing this exactly the same words being replicated now at the U.S. level in Washington, D.C. And so um, this is a good sign on the one hand, but on the other hand, what trickles out of what you're describing and what I think public uh, narratives from the Ukrainian side are trying to communicate in uh, in a way that makes sense and kind of slowly familiarizing the Western public with that is that it's going to be very difficult. And the question that I have then is, how is, in your understanding, and I guess generally in Ukraine, from what you've seen this summer going, um, can we expect at the end of the dry season, non-mud season, to have any strategic gains that will, let's be honest, ensure more political and military support from the West? Or do, you, or do people expect that um, we have to start coming to terms with the fact that given this complicated geometry that you're describing, we will just not be making significant strategic progress that people are hoping for. So predictions are always difficult. I've always tried to duck and dodge these types of questions because my military expertise is inadequate. And I'm yet to see somebody with the military expertise whose predictions yeah, yeah. Well, uh, so that's no. That should be no uh, disincentive to <laughs> to prognostication. Um, yeah. What <laughs> what I would say is that there is certainly a narrative that's being communicated domestically by the Ukrainian officials to the domestic audience that, in fact, it has consistently been that we're winning just a little bit longer and we will decisively, um, you know, change the dynamics of the battlefield. Mm. And for some reason, that narrative continues without much change domestically. So if you, if you watch domestic TV, uh, again, the, the Ukrainian party line is that the Russians are panicking, they're disorganized, they are in retreat uh, a little bit more, uh, and uh, we'll just wait, we'll push a little bit uh, harder and we'll, we'll break through. Again, I, don't, I can't comment on whether that's a wise thing to project domestically, but uh, clearly those predictions are hard to square with some of the events that have been unfolding. And it certainly has taken way longer than the original forecasts suggested. And there's a very material cost. When I was taking uh, off, my train was taking off from Kiev on, on, on this trip, I saw 50 ambulances pull up to the train station waiting for the medical evacuation train that was bringing the wounded from the front. And when you see 50 ambulances, one after another, like enter the platform, um, I mean, you understand this is not something that is without cost. This is 
this is a very heavy scene when, when you depart and, and, and see that. So obviously Ukraine has a very strong incentive to not make this an indefinite, endless war. At the same time, it has a strongly articulated line on what Ukraine defines as victory. And in between, there is a very wide gap. Uh, it's unclear how that victory can be achieved with the currently available means. I have very little doubt that that victory can be achieved, but with dramatically larger fighting force that has been trained and equipped. Uh, Ukraine does have a significant number of people mobilized, but a lot of them have either not gone through training yet or don't have enough equipment to break through. So I try not to forecast how long this will take. What instead I'm trying to do is switch from this like betting on different horses mentality to try to do something about it and change the outcome. And I think there is quite a lot that can be done even without appealing to governments. There is an incredible amount of work that has been done by private organizations that have been way more responsive to these learnings from the battlefield because they don't need to go through multiple chains of uh, multiple levels of these uh, escalation chains uh, that often pervert the message and are slow to react to these observations in the field. So I think there's quite a lot that can be done. Again, I think from the uh, folks on the ground, they believe that mistakes have been made in operational planning. So in some sense, it was possible to predict that minefields would be a problem and probably insufficient weight was placed on the scenario where the initial breakthrough does not succeed, so they had to have a plan B, uh, and they, they seem to believe in that breakthrough too much early on. But these mistakes are forcing uh, some amount of reflection and uh, changes that, that are currently being contemplated. And if they are, if the new plan is properly resourced, again, I think it's feasible to make substantial territorial gains. What they are, I don't know. Um, it seems that with the current level of resources, it's highly unlikely that the 1991 border is achievable. But it doesn't mean that it's not achievable. It's a matter of resourcing and, you know, the ability of the sufficient level of consensus in the West that this is a desirable outcome. I don't see that level of consensus yet. I don't know if it will ever be there, but uh, we need to deal with reality as it is, not as what we want it to be. This seems like a good time to pivot to a discussion of the Ukraine Defense Fund, and also I think uh, our listeners would benefit from understanding how you came to this work. So, uh, Andre, tell us your life story in a you know, summary uh, way. Um, tell us about the, the fund and uh, the successes you've had and what the challenges are. And also, this is also a story about what we were just talking about, the innovation and adaptation uh, of Ukrainian forces to the war that they've had to, to fight, which is a sometime told story, but, but one that uh, is constantly changing and is pregnant with lessons for the United States and Western armies as well. So that, that's a big plate that I just shoved in front of you. So... Pick at it any way you like. So very briefly, uh, my, my story is I grew up in Ukraine, finished high school, uh, went to Moscow to do my undergrad and lived there for six years, did my master's as well, and then came to the U.S. for my Ph.D. And after my Ph.D., went to Silicon Valley and worked for a number of companies, most recently so for Uber. So Ph.D. is from Harvard in public policy. Yes. Uh, I graduated in 2015, and since then I worked with a uh, number of companies in Silicon Valley and most recently, I ran a division at Uber called Uberworks that did um, 
gig work for other types of jobs besides driving through the same approach. When the war started, I um, came back to Ukraine uh, on February 27th. It was a pretty dark period in Ukrainian history, those few, first few days of the invasion. And I was going there not knowing how long this would last, but there was a real chance that it would be over in days. Uh, we are now a year and a half later, and it's not over, and there's no end in sight. But uh, what I knew would be very important uh, was uh, there are times in history when a relatively small number of people can change the trajectory of where the country is going. Ukraine's own recent history shows that in 2014, when Mariupol was captured, it was recaptured by Ukraine with a force of 30 people. A single platoon was able to retake Mariupol in 2014, about a month and a half after it was captured by the separatists. And I thought that there, there might be these types of circumstances where, again, a small number of people, if they are at the right place at the right time, with sufficient level of commitment, they might alter the course of how these things unfold. Uh, I arrived in my hometown and went to the conscription office where I was declined. I, I volunteered to join uh, armed forces, and it was a long line of people trying to do the same thing, and they literally had nothing to, to receive from the army. The army was giving them a rifle and two magazines of spare ammo. They had no shortage of volunteers, but they were inadequately prepared to equip them. And so they basically assigned me a convoy with two people who were driving with me and asked me to buy equipment for these folks locally, which I was doing for the first two weeks. And then when the inventory ran out in, uh, locally in Zaporizhia, uh, we founded uh, a 501c3, a U.S.-based nonprofit called Ukraine Defense Fund that started to do it in a more systematic way, raise donations in the West, buy equipment in the West, ship it in record time in less than 90 hours to uh, Zaporizhia and Donbass, and hand it out to the troops. Uh, we did that with a group of early Uber employees who were quite used to operating in very adversarial circumstances. Uh, Uber faced uh, physical violence in many markets. As you know, Uber vehicles were burned in, in many, many countries. Some Uber executives were jailed, like in, even in France. Um, so it, these folks were primed to operate in very adversarial conditions, and they were a perfect crew to make a difference early on. Approximately in June of last year, we started to see a material decline in donations as people realized that governments now passing large bills to support Ukraine, and they thought that their contribution would be minuscule compared to Uncle Sam's contribution. Um, they assumed that Uncle Sam would be spending money on the exact same categories, uh, which has not turned out to be the case so far. And uh, since then, we focused uh, primarily on brokering transactions instead of buying from scratch. So what we're trying to do, most of our work consists of identifying Western technology that's useful in Ukraine, generally dual-use commercial non-lethal technology, uh, like drones, communication systems, navigation systems, intelligence software, etc., connecting them to the end user in Ukraine, so that, that, that making sure that's the right product, and then finding a source of funds in the West government source of funds in the West that would be willing to pay for this. So in this transaction, trilateral transaction, the money does not go through us. We're just trying to make sure that this happens. But because the government funds are used, um, the scale of these transactions is dramatically larger than what we could have raised privately. We've now done about $12 million in private fundraising, and we've helped broker a number of transactions that have a collective value of about $85 million, so a much larger amount. Of course, we're not the only party involved in making them happen, but we played a significant role in either expediting or making them happen at all, these transactions. So our work has been focused on that. 
And at present, our key objective is to make sure that these predictable categories of products that Ukraine now needs in a non-lethal commercial technology space are provided not just by volunteers, not just by NGOs, not just by soldiers themselves, but that there's a more scalable way to buy them. And we're trying to uh, work uh, with U.S. Congress to raise awareness that commercial non-lethal technology is a major multiplier on all existing lethal aid that Ukraine has received. Um, it increases precision of the weapons that uh, are being sent. It reduces the expenditure of ammo, and it makes the equipment safer. Uh, because it doesn't need to shoot as many rounds, so it doesn't need to be in a firing position for as much time. And it can leave and therefore not be hit with uh, fire uh, from the other side in response. So we're trying to make sure that this category is appreciated as very important and that uh, the U.S. Um, allocates separate um, fund for uh, this type of product. So we're working in this brokering world largely. Uh, we're also working with a number of vendors trying to make sure that tech gets to the state where it's properly dual use and not just dual use in name only, where it really works in the field. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the Western tech has proven to not be very effective in um, Ukraine because it was designed against uh, hypothetical adversaries in Afghanistan and Iraq, where, again, the other side did not have sophisticated electronic warfare, warfare capabilities. And in Ukraine, those products like fall out of the sky. It's uh, it's very very visceral. You 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 see it. You you buy a plane for quarter million dollars, and falls out of the sky. It can't land. So things like this uh, require that there's a bridge, somebody who connects the user to the uh, company, and we're playing that role. Besides our work, there's a number of organizations in Ukraine uh, that are systematically supplying the army in ways that are way more effective than the chain of command, than the Ministry of Defense, and then and the allies. And it's remarkable that uh, these private organizations having just dozens of people, not, not even triple digits, uh, numbers of people, are able to make qualitative difference to the outcome of the war. Uh, we will never know what impact we had on the early days, but I know that when I arrived in Zaporizhia, the enemy was 25 miles from the front. Today, the enemy is 25 miles from the front. Well, well, from, from, from Zaporizhia. So what... what from Zaporizhia. So the distance between the Zaporizhia and, and the uh, forward deployed Russian troops was 25 miles, and it's still 25 miles. So again, I, we, we will never know to what extent our work uh, helped, but we would like to think that there was some contribution that you know, those early efforts played a role in. So thank you for, for explaining this to us. And I think it's important that you mentioned this in passing, that in June donations um, were reduced or subsided. And um, when you talk about the different organizations in Ukraine, it almost sounds as if Ukraine has got this covered. In comparing the front line, it does. But I think it's also useful to highlight one more time that it's not all covered and that the shortages are um, amazing. And I'll give one quick example that I know firsthand and then ask you what more we should be donating for or looking out and how we can help. Um, one of my friends, her husband is fighting near to where you just were. Um, and in their unit, um, they only have one night vision goggles for 12 people. And so um, he asked her if she can raise individually without the organizations um, in the United States where she lives uh, uh, money for more goggles. And she also bought out of her money 
boots um, that were good enough um, for him to be able to use them he himself. They're not sharing the boots, obviously. Um, but, but to me, these are very palpable examples that there's a lot more to be done and a lot more needed. So would you talk us through what your priorities are, the way you're reading them from the front, what, um, where people can help most in terms of donating money? This is an excellent question. Like, this is the fundamental uh, blind spot, I would say, in the West. Uh, the, the types of equipment that you described, non-lethal technology. This is uh, you know, night vision, but there's, there's a number of categories, and I'll go through them. Uh, they play a massive role in combat, but they have largely not been provided in significant quantities by uh, the U.S. And, in fact, Ukraine has not requested them. So there's a reason why the U.S. has not provided them. Ukraine has not requested them in significant quantities. Uh, when I'm talking about commercial non-lethal technology, I mean four big categories. One is transportation, so simply moving people and goods around, uh, mobility that allows people to be mobile and redeploy and, and just carry equipment with them to small operations, from used pickup trucks to cargo vans to buses to larger vehicles. All of that is in very short supply, and all these vehicles constantly get hit, so they need to be repaired and replaced. They're not that expensive. A single pickup truck used costs $5,000, and they need them frequently. And you know, when you talk to pretty much any unit, they would ask you to buy those. So that category is universally needed for almost every unit at the front. The second category is portable energy. Uh, and that portable energy basically means generators. And, and I apologize, there's uh, probably a fire truck running by my hotel. So it's oh, actually, it's not fire truck. It's the Korean president is staying here. So I think it's his entourage that's uh, being allowed through the city. Um, For the record, Andre is in Warsaw. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm passing through Warsaw on my way to D.C. Uh, and in the portable energy category, again, think about you being in an area where the normal civilization has retreated where you no longer have things that you would take for granted in the city. Electricity, running water, you know, where you would have connectivity, like all of these things are missing. So you need to replace them with something that serves those functions. And so on energy side, you need some way of generating power and storing it. So the, those batteries and generators are needed everywhere. The third big category is communications equipment. Um, and again, the foremost product in that category is Starlinks. Everyone at the front would tell you that they're relying on Starlinks. It's, it's a big component that allows them to communicate along the chain of command and, in fact, helps uh, all kinds of forward deployed units, including the ones that are in motion while driving, to uh, correct fire and communicate critical information. And the other piece to communications equipment is radio equipment. It's portable two-way radios uh, and uh, portable uh, cell towers that allow you to extend the reach of a Starlink, for example. Um, and the fourth category is a very broad set of equipment largely described as intelligence, counterintelligence, electronic warfare equipment. Uh, you can think of it as, I mean, the prime example there would be a drone. A drone is a sensor that's attached to a platform that delivers it, a uh, flying quadcopter, for example, uh, and it allows you to see from a distance uh, what's happening in the battlefield. So there's a large number of different sensors that need to be deployed, acoustic, radio, uh, visual, night vision, etc., and different platforms for delivery. It's, it could be a quadcopter, it could be a plane, it could be uh, an aerostat, a rover, a mast. There's a, there's a range of different platforms. And then there is software that ties it all together so that all of this intelligence equipment ends up 
in the same spot so the troops can have situational awareness. They can see what uh, they know about the enemy from all kinds of different assets that are deployed so they can plan their operations and uh, do something that's not going to lead to massive uh, casualties when they you know, approach without knowing what's ahead. Uh, and I would say within this category, there's also this subset of personal equipment like phones, tablets, laptops, monitors that are also universally needed to see this information, to interact with it. Uh, and any unit that you talk to would have needs across these categories. When you look at how they've been supplied, virtually none of them, with some exceptions, have been provided by the U.S., and Ukraine has not requested them. Why has Ukraine not requested them? It is because the funds available through USAI and FMF buckets are also available for lethal aid, and Ukraine um, wants lethal aid first and foremost. It's prioritized over, over everything else. So they feel like if, if they would ask for these types of equipment, they would cannibalize their lethal uh, budget. And so that's why we believe it's incredibly important to complement through other channels these needs. Uh, so far, the NGOs have raised about six to seven hundred million dollars for these types of needs. And my estimate is that the troops themselves have bought several billion dollars worth of equipment using their own salaries. So what, what people in the West often don't appreciate is that the number one buyer of this equipment is the troops themselves who take money out of their paycheck. They routinely spend a quarter of their, like on average, a quarter of their paycheck to go buy what they need, either outfits for themselves or these uh, needs for sections, platoons, companies above them. Because otherwise, they, they're just going to get uniforms and food from the top and everything else uh, and, and weapons. But everything else they'll have to figure out on their own. And so those needs, uh, the problem is a lot of this equipment is um, not going to last for very long. It would have a short lifespan, so it needs to be replenished at all times. And there's a constant need for this procurement. So the, for us, the, it is obviously preferred to be able to go and buy it directly. Uh, this way you're able to get the best prices and the shortest delivery times. But the most scalable way is to convince the U.S. government to allocate a separate bucket of money for these types of needs. So Ukraine would then start requesting against that bucket without cannibalizing their lethal aid. So that's kind of two of our main priorities. If I, if I may, um, just to f follow up on uh, your, your point about your business model, so to speak, the sort of brokering element of, of this connecting you know, Western technologies and end users in, in Ukraine, what I find fascinating about that is that it must rely on a fairly decentralized and flexible sort of system of decision making in place within the Ukrainian military that allows for you know this kind of experimentation and you never know in advance what kinds of gadgets are going to work or not which are going to be suitable for the battlefield or or not uh, have you ever encountered difficulties within you know the the Ukrainian armed forces kind of you know people being prickly about this idea that you have this sort of you know NGO coming in and 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 you know connecting with this sort of end users on the on the on, on the battlefield or, or or has the system already been sort of geared towards this this kind of you know decentralization uh, if you or polycentrism if you will well the Ukrainian army historically has been quite decentralized since 2014 um, and it was that it was a necessity there was no other way to supply the military on all kinds of needs than to accept aid from outside. Uh, when it comes to transactions that are paid for by foreign the governments, you always need the buy-in of a Ukrainian stakeholder because Ukraine needs to submit a letter of request to the allies 
which then allocate funds, which then go to the vendor, and then vendor ships this equipment to Ukraine. So there is a need for cooperation from the Ukrainian government on each transaction. Otherwise, it won't happen. Otherwise, the ally would not allocate funds. Um, I would say that, by and large, Ukraine has been very reluctant to issue those letters of request against funds that could be used for weapons, and more willing to do so for funds that could not be used for weapons. And as a result, most of the transactions that we've done, they've been not paid by the U.S., but they've been paid by Germany, uh, which has provided less lethal aid than others, And uh, at least at the time. They've scaled that up uh, more recently, but last year they, they were behind other allies on lethal equipment. And the challenge, of course, is, again, in the perfect world, the MOD would have their own brokers who would do this. We're effectively acting as a buyer's agent. We're kind of trying to help them scout different technology options, vet them, and then try to identify sources of funds that could be used against them. So we're trying to uh, augment their bandwidth. Uh, and, again, in the normal world, it would, be doing, it would be done by somebody who is on their payroll doing this work. But because at present they are short on this expertise and the folks who can go to the West, travel, um, and explore um, vendor relationships and additional, um, do additional follow-up if something goes wrong, um, they do welcome this help. For now, it doesn't mean that this will persist, but so far the Ukrainian chain of command has understood its limitations and has been open to accept help from the outside. Andre, I want to ask you one last question about about this subject. Um, so you read about uh, how this is unfolding in units uh, in Ukraine, and you know you read about <laughs> use of Chinese cell phones and Mavic drones. You know, which you can still get at Best Buy, but uh, you know, I can't, it would be difficult to imagine U.S. government funds being made available for a Chinese drone. I mean, I don't actually know what the rules are, but you can imagine that. And there's also the question of Starlink and how Elon Musk feels about the Ukraine war today or tomorrow. Uh, I th it's my understanding that some of the issues have been resolved in regard to Starlink, uh, but if you could give us an update on that. And it, you, as you source commercially derivative technology for the Ukrainian army, do you find yourselves looking outside, you know, again, China's just a huge source of cheap technology in large numbers, and I'm not Speaking on the Chinese, using it as an example of a good place to go shopping. Uh, so, but I'd be interested in whether that causes you any uh, either internal anxiety or external pushback. Dependence on the Chinese supply chain is significant. Uh, it is clearly a problem. The question is, do we really have a choice in the short term? And right. uh, yeah. I would say that on drones in particular, on small drones like DJI Mavic 3, uh, different modifications, 3, 3E, 3T, 3 Pro. My view is that nobody in the West is going to have a viable replacement uh, at a comparable price point to that drone in the next 12 to 18 months, and maybe even longer. Uh, and certainly Ukraine would not be able to replicate these domestically uh, on this kind of time scale. So longer term, uh, it is an issue that the DoD appreciates. They understand that they're behind the, the best made U.S. drone in the same class is five to seven times more expensive and, in fact, worse on every spec. 
camera data link navigation. But that's, it, it, that's the Defense Department for you. But, but it's, it's, it's still not made by the Defense Department. Okay, it's so private it's, companies, uh, okay. but they are way behind because the scale is two orders of magnitude smaller than the DJI scale. And DJI has gotten to this incredible level of dominance globally. Um, so it is a significant problem, and uh, I do understand the limitations, so it's unlikely that U.S. funds would go toward funding those types of products. But if they go toward funding other types of products that are made in the U.S., including night vision equipment, which is made in the U.S., it frees up the funds that either Ukraine itself or the, vo or the people who raise funds for Ukraine can deploy for that Chinese technology. Of course, China does not sell into Ukraine directly, so it's all parallel imported through third countries. China understands full well where the, these products are going, and they're taking, they're making a lot of effort to lock down Ukraine's ability to use these drones in Ukraine. And so, the new version, uh, each each new version of firmware needs to be jailbroken to be usable without material risk to the lives of the operators, because coordinates of every drone get communicated to DJI and then relayed to the Russians if they have aeroscopes. These devices that display both the drones and operators on the map using the information provided by the drone and, and the controller directly. So in order to make them not talk to DJI servers and, or tell those servers uh, fake coordinates, like zero, zero, latitude, longitude, yeah. as if you're... Yeah, put some Russian coordinates in there. Right? Yes. Um, so the, the challenge, of course, is uh, with every version, you need to redo this jailbreaking. There's never a guarantee that it will be successful. It takes a lot of effort. It's also very costly. So I would say that, yes, there will be limitations to how the U.S. could deploy these funds. And at the same time, there's quite a lot that could be bought in the U.S. Like transportation, there's plenty of pickup trucks in the U.S., plenty of used school buses in the U.S. that could be sent at fairly low cost. And in fact, materially augment Ukrainian logistics capabilities to move things around, to move people around, and in fact, create specialty vehicles like showers or laundries for the people who sit in the trenches for weeks at a time and get skin conditions that make it very difficult for them to fight. So those are not luxuries, those are necessities, and they can be achieved with used equipment. So in some sense, the ask is to send American garbage to uh, Ukraine. It's better than nothing. Um, so that's, that's the first point. The second point is, I think there is a path to develop different products in the, in the categories I described, especially larger drones, where DJI does not play, where Chinese companies do not play because there's no large commercial market for them they are much more likely to be used in military applications or in very niche commercial applications. And I think there, there's a viable path to create products using best Western components that would be tailored to these adversarial conditions where GPS doesn't work, where your communication link is disrupted or jammed with uh, the pilot. And I think Ukraine can make a very big difference there by having the R&D co-located with the end user. So this is the fundamental piece of the Silicon Valley playbook that is missing for Western vendors today. They're too far from the end user to be able to tailor their product to the needs. And even if they do it, they think of it as a one-shot operation. I've done it, now I'm golden. That's not the case, because this war is a constant arms race, literally an arms race. The enemy will find new ways to disrupt the equipment, so you constantly need to iterate on counter countermeasures. And as a result, if you're not faster than the enemy at these iterations, you're going to be behind. So you need to be able to uh, have this loop that's closed locally. And uh, one of the highest leverage applications of funds is to deploy them against R&D in Ukraine for these types of products. 
so that can then serve the West because the exact same uh, countermeasures will be used by China. You can be absolutely certain they'll be jamming GPS, they'll be jamming uh, comms links, and they'll be learning from this conflict uh, in other theaters. So all other near-peer adversaries, and not even near-peer, some of these capabilities are very cheap. Jammers you can buy for a thousand bucks. So in many cases, this will become democratized in a bad way. Like all kinds of bad guys will now have capabilities to disrupt commercial equipment. And so there, there will be a massive need for hardening that equipment against simple disruptions. And this is where there's currently a lack of funding uh, or shortage of funding. I don't want to say lack. There's still some funding. But putting money into that work uh, will have the highest leverage and the highest impact in the you know, 6 to 12 months uh, on a 6 to 12 the 12 months time scale. Andre, uh, thank you so much for spending so much time with us. Uh, our hopes and dreams sail in you, at least here on the Eastern Front. Uh, and I hope you'll come back and join us periodically with, um, with these kinds of updates. It's so hard to get a fingertip feel for what the war is truly like uh, without uh, talking to people like you. So I deeply, deeply appreciate it. So from me, Giselle Donnelly, and Julia Zosa and thanks to everybody for listening to the Eastern Front. Our podcast is dedicated to the security challenges that have arisen along the line from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website at aei.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do be in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod, that's all one word. And if you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.